Hey there, welcome to our AP Legal Zone podcast brought to you by AP Lawyers. We are your top fix for all weekly law updates, including family, immigration, wills, and estates law. Just a friendly reminder we are not your lawyers, and everything contained in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and not to be construed as legal advice. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about our new episodes. Hi, I'm Angela Princewell, and today I'm here with Shirin Abdi, and we're going to talk to you about equalizing your net family properties, right, Shirin? Yes, we are. How are you doing today? We're doing fantastic. Yeah, the weather is really nice, so we're excited, but hey, back to your your matters okay so if you're going through a separation or if a spouse um, died um, these both events could trigger equalization of net family properties and today we want to talk to you about how that's done under the Ontario Family Law Act yeah and before we start it's important to note that equalization is a process only entitled to married spouses exactly so that's a common misconception and again this is one of those mistakes that a lot of younger lawyers make so you'd see um you know i get some of these common law spouses and and someone else is asking for all of these equalization um documentation and almost sounding like we're going to be going through that process it may or may not happen but it's not automatic. So equalization, as Shireen said, is only for married um, spouses. For common law, it may happen for you, but you have to make a trust claim first. And we're not going to be talking about trust today because that's a whole three-hour conversation for another day. So jumping right into today's topic, um, you're going to be hearing a few words from us, like the main buzzwords you're going to hear us say your NFP, because that's just that stands for net family property. And Shireen, do you want to tell us what net family property is? Yes. So net family property means the value of all property except property, which is basically your debts and your liabilities. So it's actually taking the net value of your property that's acquired during your marriage. So from the date of marriage to the date of separation. Exactly. So with your net family, so there's net family property, which Shireen has just explained. There's the equalization, which essentially is just sharing equally your it, in its simplest terms it's the process of making sure that whatever assets whatever your net property is is equal between the both of you now could that be any more complex yeah think of it in the most simplest way as I... dividing property that was acquired during your marriage um so if the party if one party has a higher net family property than the other spouse they will pay half the difference. And that process right there, that's what equalization is. Yeah, so I wonder if the act says it easier. So it says when a divorce is granted or a marriage is de- declared a nullity or, um, or when spouses are separated and there's no reasonable prospect that they would resume cohabitation, the spouse whose net family property is the lesser of the two net family properties is entitled to one half the difference between them. So that's not very helpful. You know what, in the simplest of terms, when you heard equalization, you probably thought it means the other person and you are going to leave the relationship with equal shares of whatever you have and you're you're pretty much correct, okay? The only difference is when we get into the legalese of it, of calculating your net family property, you're going to discover one, that you don't just share 
every asset equally. Yeah, it's not asset for asset. Yeah, so it's not shared that way. And secondly, there's a lot of deductions and exclusions that people are entitled to in the process of getting to your net family property, okay? And I'm going to call it NFP going forward. <laughs> and one more thing to note is when dealing with the process of your net family property, the matrimonial home is the one thing that if one spouse owns it prior to the date of marriage, they do not get a deduction for it. So from that starting basis, the matrimonial home for that purpose is not included for equalization. Okay, so how do we calculate your net family property? So when, um, when a triggering event happens, um, your NFP is essentially, we can go one of two ways. Usually the more conventional way is to both do financial statements and on your respective financial statements, you would have the assets and liabilities that you had as of the date of marriage. And this is as it's at its most basic. You would have everything on the date of marriage, on the date of separation, which is also the valuation date, and the today value. On your financial statements, the today value really just serves to show a snapshot of where you are. It doesn't really, you, most assets, except it's jointly owned, do not get divided based on the today value. It's the date of separation. Yeah, so you're more inclined to really pay attention to two dates. That's the date of marriage and the date of separation for equalization purposes. Yeah. If you're going through a collaborative um, family law process, we may not do your do financial statements. Usually you you would be working with a financial neutral, which is usually a non-lawyer, um, an expert in finances that would, um, prepare your your nfp statement and in those cases they kind of skip the financial statement process and all they prepare is this you know statement that shows you know on one you know sheet or few pages exactly what your your nfp is and what the other um, party's nfp is so if you remember from or if you've listened to our last podcast on sort of what disclosure you need that all leads up to this like sometimes it gets when people are being hounded for disclosure it kind of we kind of forget the purpose it almost looks like it's this endless chasing game of disclosure after another everything is just to culminate to this point where you can actually calculate your um nfps um so let's so should we, what do we start with so when we're doing your um nfp statements we would usually start with sort of your the properties that you own that are real property. And I know you had kind of talked about um, the, matrimonial. the matrimonial home. Um, and then, you know, we list out, you know, your household items, just sort of all the things that are all the your assets, assets you have. And yes, if you want more clarity as to all what actually is considered an asset, you can listen to our previous podcast. <laughs> we went over that in great detail. But Essentially, any foreign, um, any interest in any foreign properties as well is included. A lot of people have that misconception that just because they're not in Ontario or in a different jurisdiction that, you know what, they don't count. Unfortunately, yeah. they do. <laughs> um, I mean, there can be entitled to some exclusions there, which we'll go over. But essentially, all property, any assets, vehicles, cars, bank accounts, and if it's shared, you would place half the value. So anything that's jointly held... Or if you you would place your interest in that account, if it's, you know, you have three people on a bank account, which I'm not even sure if you... 
<laughs> I'm sure you can. Um, but it's things like that, or if you have one third of an interest in a property, you would place that in and yes. um, the other spouse, if they have an interest in a property, they would place their respective share in as well. Okay. So when you've put in all of your, your assets in their respective columns, and if you just do a Google search for net family property statement, um, Ontario, you would get, you know, the detailed NFP, um, document that we're referring to. And so once you've listed sort of all your assets in there, then you also do the same with your liabilities. And, and um, we also, again, talked about the various things that qualifies your liabilities. And then we look at, and then you get a deduction for your assets and liabilities that you owned as of the date of marriage. Yes. That's a significant one because so many times people get very scared and they think they just have to equalize everything they have right now and when they find out that they get this date of marriage deduction a lot of times the the consequence is really not as severe as people think especially i find for short marriages sometimes you know if someone's coming into the relationship with a million dollars in rsps and you've just had a three-year marriage like and besides going into an equal division <laughs> claims, but let's even say six year marriage so I can avoid that for now. Yeah. Then there's that concern that, you know, he or she gets to walk away with $500,000, but that's not the case. No, it's not. Because in the last six years, your RSP, if you're lucky, may have just grown by a couple of percentage Yeah, points. and in that case, they're really only entitled to the increase. And that's a common, a common concern, I think, even if you have a property that you came into on the date of marriage, they just assume that they may be just getting 50% of it, or some people just may assume they may not get nothing. Yeah. Uh, so that's an off, that's often also um, not true. So it's really you're sharing in the increase if you own that property, other than it being the matrimonial home. Yes. Um, then, you know, you're entitled to that date of marriage deduction, which is very significant to some people. Um, so I think I'm sure you urge your clients, you know, where they exist, please do find the evidence it's under it's your obligation under the law to provide evidence for any deductions you wish to claim and any exclusions you wish to claim. yeah so with the with that you touched on a very important point which is you know the proof of that so the number of times that people would say um you know i had twenty thousand dollars in the bank when when we got into this relationship i had a car and you know different assets and in like 1987 yes on short long-term marriages it's, it's almost very difficult and that's why again i believe in people doing marriage contracts because if nothing it at least gives a snapshot to everybody of exactly what you own as of the date of marriage. So even people get this idea that because they want the law to apply to them, they're fine with equalization, they're fine with everything else. They don't need to do a marriage contract, which is if you're, God forbid, have to separate after 30 years of marriage, good luck finding proof that you came into this relationship with even $10,000. If you're lucky, you would have a spouse that would say, oh, well, I remember, you know, she came in with, you know, this car that was worth like $10,000, but that's the exception. It's really not the rule. So (laughs) yeah, if it's a shorter term marriage, you may be able to find and prove what I've had. um, I mean, some I've had um, clients in long-term relationships be able to find um, proof of say RSP contributions on the date of marriage by going to CRA, for example, and getting proof of their contributions. Again, that's a good tip. Yeah, at it, least CRA records are you know more. They're obviously kept 
pursue and, and accept for bank records, which are usually about seven to eight years. Yeah, I was surprised that we could actually get records that far. Um, if you have, say, in Lira, for example, let's say you left, you know, your old job in 1990 and it was transferred over for many people, they still they've done nothing. It's just the Lira. So whatever, it's, sometimes they're able to find the amount that the yeah, Lira was trying to started. do is tracing, essentially. Let's say you had a pension at the date of marriage and you know, it was cashed in before the date of separation, but those funds were put somewhere else. You may be able to still call back that that exclusionary um, portion of it mm -hmm. if you're able to trace it back. And some people are really good. Like we've had people bring receipts for severance pay yeah. that they received, you know, in the Years 90s. Prior to. So some people are really good, but some people struggle. And the sad part is if you're one of those that don't have the evidence of your date of marriage, um, documents and um you know documents that could help you qualify for that deduction and the other side is disputing it yeah. i would strongly advise that it's a fight that's not worth it the the judge is not going to take your word for it you're probably not except you have other ways of proving any it. other other evidence or if the other party agrees but if they're contesting it it, it would be difficult it will be difficult because it's then it's just a he said she said yeah so that's you might have to pick your battle um with that one and then, so that's the date of marriage deduction. It's completely different from an exclusion. So the date of marriage deduction is what you had at the date of marriage. Oh, you know, an interesting thing that I always wonder. So in some cultures, um, jewelry is usually given during marriage. And the number of times I ask people, like, was it given to you on the day of the marriage or was it given to you before? Because some people actually get it before the date of, of marriage and I'm like okay well perhaps because we can... they do like the religious ceremonies sometimes which is not actually perceived the date of separation at uh, the date of marriage but the more religious ceremony that actually I guess they could perceive to be married but they're gifted so if they're jewelry. gifted that so then it's it's something that you can exclude because you didn't own it as of the date of the marriage that yeah. we're using for the purposes. So that's that's an interesting one. So definitely account. I mean, word to the wise, you know, <laughs> if you're thinking of, you know, remarrying if you're in this scenario. But, you know, maybe have all your bank records handy. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, before the date of marriage so that you have those values. If you Exactly. So if you're getting them. married, if you're getting married in July, there's no, <laughs> or in June, there's no harm on May 31st, just printing all of your bank records yeah. or on the day before your wedding. Hey, and it's it great. It save you a lot. And it could be fun as well. If nothing happens, you could also see where you were and how far you've come. And that could be something yeah. for you to celebrate as a couple, <laughs> right? So, yeah. So the way things are treated for, for date of marriage, um, is Actually, different from exclusions because for date of marriage deductions, you don't need to have those funds today. So that's another common misconception. People say, I had, um, you know, this piece of jewelry on the day before marriage, but I've sold it. I don't have it anymore. I had this property. I've sold it. So for date of marriage deductions, it's okay that you just had it as of the date of marriage. You don't need to have it as of the date of separation. Yeah, I think the best, I think I even had a recent um, conversation. No one really, like, well, not no one, but she specifically didn't understand what a deduction actually meant. So I'll explain it in the simplest way, which hopefully you can follow along with an, with an example. So let's say you had about $200,000 in RSPs on the date of marriage. And on the date of separation, they're now $250,000. 
you automatically will get a $200,000 deduction in addition to some contingent tax liabilities that we'll, we'll discuss later. But essentially, you're getting to deduct $200,000 from whatever you're actually, your actually, your net family property is on the date of marriage, on the date of separation. So, so your NF is your a NF good thing. It's a good thing, 100%. Yes. It's a good thing. Yes. Always a good thing. For the person who is getting the... Uh, yeah. deduction obviously because if you're the one that's on the receiving end and let's say your nfp is just consists of that one asset now it's the difference between getting one hundred and twenty-five thousand and just twenty-five thousand in yeah, that example it can be significant let's say um your spouse's business was valued at you know a million dollars at the date of marriage and you know throughout the marriage it actually went bankrupt or significant decrease yes. in value at the date of separation it's worth significantly less but that entire deduction is valid exactly. and it really reduces the amount of of ep or equalization payment as we call it mm -hmm. um to, that would actually reduce the other spouse so yes trust me when i say it's a good thing now debts as a date of marriage i know I know that actually reduces the deduction, just yes. be aware. So, so if you have um, like a, a lot of, of debt during during yeah. the, the, the date of marriage, some people come in with significant student loans and things like that, you also have to disclose that there. And that's not as helpful as being <laughs> able to deduct the assets. But we don't want yeah, to get too technical with you. On the date of separation, that is helpful. That is helpful. Yes. But not to get too technical with yeah. you, you would see how the numbers work when you put it on your net family property statement. Just remember that deduction, it doesn't matter if you no longer own it. But for exclusions, which we'll be talking about, the amount that you're excluding has to exist as of the, da as of the date of separation. So for an exclusion, for example, if you received um, property, so what are... Actually, I'm going to have Shireen first talk about what excluded property is. So excluded property um, actually doesn't form part of your net family property. So it's property other than the matrimonial home um, that's acquired by a gift and inheritance if you receive that um, or any, any gift or inheritance from a third person, um, any income from a property. Um, if, the, if someone had gifted you a property and the donor of that property had explicitly and expressly provided that it would be excluded from your from your net family property that would also apply as an exclusion any damages or right to damages for personal injuries so um any nervous shock mental distress um so any like settlements for damages those would be under all well there's some caveats there but <laughs> under normal circumstances damages and the right to settlements and things like that would also be excluded um, proceeds and the right to um, proceeds from a life insurance policy that was mm -hmm. payable upon death. Um, property, I guess, other than the matrimonial home that can be traced. So if, so, you, if you essentially got an inheritance in the form of a house, but then you sell the house and you put the money into mutual funds, now that mutual fund is what except if it's joint <laughs> or um, if it's placed into the matrimonial home, that exclusionary nature is gone. So... Um, property that you have expressly included that would be excluded in a marriage contract would also be excluded and any unadjusted pension earnings. Okay. So those are just simple forms of excluded property. 
Exactly. So as Sharina already said, it doesn't form part of your net family property. You get to own that, um, you know, without having free and clear. You don't have to share it with the other spouse, except obviously you want to, then you can't. But the challenge we always have, and Shireen kind of touched on that a little bit, is when she said, except it's joint. So the rule of law is if you, there's a, if you put, if property is in joint names, it's presumed to be owned by both people that are the joint. So if if you take money and you put it in a joint account, except you show that your intentions were different, the law would fairly presume that you know you and the other party that's on the account own those funds jointly and the exclusion would effectively be lost yeah so you would be able to exclude so if you put in um a hundred thousand dollars into an a joint account um well again we've argued around this okay so <laughs> it's not it's not always had a fast route but in general if you put a hundred thousand dollars into a joint account and you're trying to exclude that property Technically, all you really can exclude is fifty thousand. It's your share because you gave you essentially kind of gifted the other person the half by putting it in the joint account. But again, it's a rebuttable presumption, so don't get too caught up there. But the point is, it needs to be traced. So if you got, you know, a a boat, for example, and then you sold it and you got twenty grand, and now you did a little bit of this and a little bit of that, yeah, and we can't find the money on the date of sep- on the date of um, separation, there's nothing we can do. Like, I mean, we could exclude, like, I mean, the portion we can find. <laughs> yeah, if we can find if it. We like, can find if it. you did use so the twenty, yeah. Let's just say you sold your boat for forty thousand dollars. Twenty thousand dollars went in account. The other twenty thousand dollars we can't account for. Well, at the very very least, we'll be able to exclude. The it's always shocking to people because they're like, "Well, but she knew I got." $40,000 or he knew how much he was also named on the wheel. He knew very rarely does someone say, yes, you should get the exclusion yeah. voucher because it means they don't get to share in that property. Yeah. So for the purposes of equalization. So it's very unlikely that they'll agree. I mean, it's not a hundred percent unlikely, but it's, it's not very common. In addition yeah. to that, if it's an inheritance, the one thing you have to note is it needs to be separate. That shows your intention to keep it separate, and that mm-hmm. that keeps its exclusionary nature there. And it's easier to trace that way, probably. Yeah. <laughs> we hope, unless yeah. you put it into like fourteen different accounts, and we have <laughs> to go back. But ultimately, what we can do is we would get the will, we would de- decipher the amount that you received from the inheritance. Hopefully, that amount is still somewhere in some account in some asset that exists on the date of separation. Yeah. So, in short. Your NFP is your the value of your assets. Um, Less your debts and your contingent liabilities, which um, we'll also maybe, do you want to maybe touch on the contingent liabilities? Okay, so contingent liabilities are essentially liabilities that are, are not happening, you don't have now and would probably happen at some point in the future. Um, the most notable ones is, you know, taxes that would be applicable to certain like registered instruments like RSPs, um, pensions, that sort of thing. So they're essentially um, liabilities that would ap- happen in the future and not at this point. I think you went also went into a little more detail about this at our earlier podcast, so I don't want to take up too much time <laughs> here doing that. But I guess the point I'm trying to say is in coming to your NFP, we're going to exclude your assets and your liabilities 
um, on the date of valuation, we would um, deduct what um, you had, you know, assets and liabilities on the date of marriage. We would exclude any property that can be excluded. And then we come to each person's net family property. And the process of equalization is simply looking at both and the person with the higher NFP pays the other person 50% of, of the difference. Now, what if it's zero or what if it's a negative number? Oh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> then it's nothing. Okay. So if we're done this entire exercise and you have minus $5,000, I know how painful it is. It just really breaks people's hearts that they put their life, you know, mind, soul, efforts, everything into this relationship. And now they're living with negative $5,000 and they're thinking there is nothing more fair than for the other side to pay $2,500 of this debt. It doesn't work that way. Once it's a negative number, it becomes zero. We cannot share a negative number. Yeah, we can only hope that you're the one with the negative value and the other party has a number that's not negative and it's paying yes. you half that difference. Exactly. If not, if they have, you know, zero or if they actually, I mean, I know that I can feel the unfairness when the other party actually has zero simply because they were able to deduct things and exclude things and you don't have that option and you have all of the debt in your name and, and they have all of these assets they can exclude. We feel the injustice. We feel the unfairness. Unfortunately, there's only so much that you can go outside of the Family Law Act in this context, and it's going to be zero. And there's, you know, really, yeah. except the other party. Again, people can do things from the goodness of their heart. The act doesn't stop that. But if they're not trying to do that, then, you know. Yeah, if it is, if it is uh, maybe family debt that was incurred recklessly by the other party in your name, there is recourse there. But not in the not in the process of equalization specifically. Yeah. So let's say we've done all of this process and it's negative, it's whatever, and or let's let's make it simple. Let's say there's a positive number for for equalization and A is going to be paying B, you know, twenty thousand dollars or whatever, and it's not fair in the circumstances. Which is always the case. I can tell yes. you when anyone's having to pay the other, unless it's a pretty like significantly low number than what they expected it's usually never fair yep so there is i'm sure we talked about recourse so under the act you can ask that you get more or less than half the difference between your nfps if the court believes that it would be unconscionable um, yes for, i would highlight that word yes unconscionable, unconscionable. Yeah. What is the easiest way? It has to be shocking to the conscience. And trust me, it, it really must shock though. And paying someone $50,000 is not shocking. Paying someone maybe mm -hmm. $100,000 may not also be shocking. There's times when the courts have looked at a short marriage and someone's walking away with over a million dollars and it's still not considered shocking to the conscience. How shocking do you to my conscience? Yes, exactly. But not shocking to the but judges. But the threshold is quite high, so you do want to be weary. You do want to consult with a lawyer if if that's something mm -hmm. that you want to consider making a claim for. So if you're when we're making thinking about claims, so let's say unconscionability is a given, or we're even trying to see if we can position our claim to to be um, an unequal division one way or the other. So either to give you more, so that 
maybe could offset some of that debt that you have or to have you pay less because you probably came in with all of these it's a short whatever reason so here's some of the factors that we look into so i think um Jirina, can we just run through these quickly yeah. um so a spouse's failure to disclose the other spouse's debts or other liabilities existing at the date of marriage mm -hmm. the fact that the debts or other liabilities claimed in reduction of that spouse's nfp were recklessly incurred or in bad faith so for example i touched on this earlier um, a part of the spouse's net family property that consists of gifts made by other, the other spouse. Um, the spouse's intentional and reckless depletion of his or her net family property. So if they intentionally depleted their net family property so they wouldn't pay you an equalization payment, this is also where you can consider making this claim. Okay. Um, the fact that the amount a spouse would otherwise receive is disproportionately large in um, for the period of cohabitation that is less than five years mm -hmm. and for the terms of cohabitation it's let's say you guys got married in 2010 but you began cohabitating in 2015 and in, in, in 2005 you count that period of cohabitation in addition to your years of marriage so you want to be careful when making that when, when that making that claim for less than five years mm -hmm. um, and then in addition if the fact that one spouse has a disproportionately larger amount of debts or other liabilities than the other spouse for the support of the family. So the family debt situation we had talked about. Mm -hmm. And um, a written agreement between a spouse that is not a domestic contract or any other circumstances relating to the acquisition, disposition, preservation, maintenance, or improvement of property. So for example, that's where your trust claim kind of comes in. So if you had a property that is not joint, but intended to be joint, or your efforts throughout those years, um, you contributing to the payments, you um, preserving the property, renovating the property, things like that may acquire you um, a different share and a higher amount just for that reason. Yeah, so um, yeah, we had talked about with again that previous example, if, if that debt, we have to work within the act and we could try to position your claim in this in this context right the only problem that we may experience when arguing that you shouldn't have to walk away with all the debt is having to meet that test of unconscionability and it's not about the amount so in the context of your family you having to walk away with a five thousand dollar debt may be unconscionable um to the courts because it's always it's looked at case by case each individual's circumstances different so if that's just going to be if in the circumstances it's shocking to the court that this person you know gets to to walk away because they've recklessly depleted their property and now you know you're stuck with you know debt that you dispro disproportionate um, amount of the family debt this is where we might be able to get you some recourse yeah. but again just remember that don't think this is just it's not an unfairness. And I think that's the point I was really trying to make. This section is not there to write unfairness. The judges are very aware that in some cases, the result is unfair. What they're trying to deal with here is something that's unconscionable, not just unfair. Exactly. Okay. Um, so now that you know, you know what you're, you, you know, you've done your NFP calculations, you figured out what the equalization amount is um i guess the next step is how do you pay this how do you satisfy this equalization this is another thing that kind of irks me sometimes and i know it sounds like a lot of things irk me but <laughs> anyway it doesn't i just really love most things but sometimes 
people kind of forget that the equalization payment and satisfaction of equalization are two separate things. So don't be, don't get caught up in just, but I know we touched on this earlier. It's not, we're not equalizing individual properties for in a lot of um, contexts, the results might end up being the same. But a lot of times, if you divide individual assets, you either end up overpaying or you you just don't receive your full entitlement. You definitely may end up overpaying, especially if it's not joint. Yeah. So. Yeah. So once we've known what your equalization amount is, then we can figure out, okay, you're owed a million dollars and you now want to keep the family residence, for example. So if it's a matrimonial home and the other person has you know, what, $500,000 interest, then we can say, okay, let's set it off against that. And then we can talk we, about rollovers, you know, how are we going to roll over from an RSP, one RSP to the other, or there's, we can get creative. There's any yeah. number of ways. Well, it look can at be your done. assets. At the end of the day, like cash flow is a significant issue to parties. So if you have a pension um, and you obviously don't have cash or any cash flow or at mm -hmm. hand, and you can't satisfy that payment without obviously selling the home. There's maybe no interest in the home or not enough equity. You may consider dividing the pension at source. Yes. Which basically means it'll be divided by the pension plan administrator, depending on the pension that you have. Yeah. Um, and it would be automatically transferred to a lear. So it would take place in that form. So for most people, they're able to, from very early on in the process, they kind of have an idea on how they want equalization to be satisfied. And so usually by the time we run the numbers and come up with, come to an agreement on what the figures are, then usually it's just a question of trying to set it off. Um, you know, some people have very strong opinions on their pensions. I had, you know, I've had matters where I had this very interesting matter where all my client wanted was to keep her RSP. She didn't care about anything else, whatever I did, so long as I could make sure she did not have to roll over any portion of that RSP. It meant a lot to her and for good reason, I totally understand. So um, we were able to work around that. But let's say what happens when a person doesn't, um, or when parties don't agree on how to share, how to satisfy the equalization payment owing? Then, of course, you're back in court. So what are some of the things or that... Or any other alternative dispute resolution process. So mediation, arbitration. Yeah, so mediation can't really order yes, what they can't do. make, But they can yeah. help you get there. Yeah. <laughs> if you're looking for a binding decision. So if you're in arbitration yeah. or you're in court, um, because you guys have... Which, as I said, this is very rare, but I have had it happen a few times where we know what the numbers are and everything, and now we need to figure out how to pay the other and it usually comes down to one person um you know maybe wants the house and does and wants the other person to keep their pension so they keep the house and the pension owner is saying well i don't want to just be stuck with my pension i don't know if i'm going to die and ever collect this pension i don't want to be pension rich in 20 years but cash poor now i need the equity from the home to buy a home and both sides can have very valid arguments solid arguments but but very different NFP numbers. So yeah. No, the NFP also, numbers in this context I'm talking about oh, is exactly the same. We're not arguing no numbers here. Okay. There's no disagreement on, on NFP numbers. There's equalization amount payable is clear. The only thing that's not clear is do you pay through a pension transfer or do you pay from the net family? Do you pay from the net proceeds of sale of the home? 
do you pay by RSP? Do you pay by money in your bank? It's just how do you satisfy this payment? Yeah. And everybody can have solid reasons for their positions, but there's still the conflict there that has to be resolved. So you could go to the courts and, you know, the courts can order that, um, you know, one person pay the other, just straight out what you need to pay. You pay from, they can just make an order one way or, or yeah, another within a certain period of time yeah likely. that's one that i like <laughs> yeah. yeah you definitely want some certainty into so if if um my client is struggling with making the equalization payment um and you know i i like a payment plan so that they can you know pay it over time just note that there's a 10-year period over which this pay equalization must be satisfied so and many times the judges don't want it that long. Yeah, they like just, they like a clean break, especially if it turns out there are other assets that you can, you know, do a bridge or a reverse mortgage or yes. refinancing. Um, even sell sell of a property. property. Yes, the sale yeah, of a property. If and that's what they're going to lean towards. If you're unable to satisfy the payment and the other party's in need of it, they may say, you know what, too bad. You're gonna have to. Hey, but you could out. try. You could try for that payment plan, man. You, you could try. try. The payment plan makes, <laughs> I think, a more attractive, more reasonable period of six years. Although I also don't hear that often. No, I've never. Like it's usually, I've, I've honestly tried to argue over nine years. That was not successful. Uh, it's it's a long time, and frankly, it it doesn't. Um, it's not something I would not go to court to make that sort of that argument if we're already there for other purposes i would get the judge's input on that suggestion because i i also can see the ridiculousness of it people need to move on the the courts want you know as clear a clean a break rather as possible so even having to wait two years to finish equalization kind of keeps the parties kind of tied to each other but if that's the case then you want to consider you know you want to consider security as well right for support so if you're satisfying the equalization payment over time and, you know, my client's entitled to equalization payment in two years, I would not just allow that happen without ensuring that there's some sort of security. It might be in the form of registering a mortgage against maybe your home or your For business property. Amount, yeah. Um, life insurance or life policy. insurance. Yes. And until that amount or part, portion of that amount's paid, it can get readjusted exactly. to the amount appropriate. But yeah, you definitely would want security for some for something like that. Exactly. And and yeah, so um okay, so if you've done your NFPs, you've equalized, you've figured out how, you know, to satisfy the equalization payment. But before you even get to all that, how about the limitation period, right? Yes. This is probably the most important, um, because if you're past the limitation period, your claim is also gone. I mean, with the exceptional circumstance that may not apply to you but you have to be very careful because don't rely on the exception yes, man just do just things remember within be the very mindful of the limitation period um so if it's uh, so from the date of separation you have six years to apply for a claim for equalization and two years after a divorce and when i say these are very rigid timelines they are rigid timelines so if it's two years and you know 17 days post an, an expiry date that's going to be that's going to be a problem. That would be the mm -hmm. other party relying on the fact that there's a lapse of the time limit there. So you definitely want to make sure you stick to the time limits that are recorded in the law. But yeah, absolutely. 
Okay, Am, um, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add here. I feel this. like we covered everything. Okay, guys, so that's it for today. Um, thanks for listening. Um, I'm not sure if you caught the part where Shireen was saying that you need to go back and review our previous episode on um, financial statements and sort of the documents that goes in there. And yeah, and until next time, bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening and joining us in the AP Legal Zone. We hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find more episodes by searching AP Legal Zone on anywhere you watch podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast today so you can stay connected with any updates and get notified about any new episodes. Mm-hmm.